is Dr. Guy. And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers. Welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If it is your first time, we'd like to welcome you to the pod, a storytelling podcast that discusses the non-chronological history of medicine, because it is easier that way. Today, we're going to tackle Doctrine on the Oregon Trail. Why are you talking so slow? Are you having a stroke? <laughs> no, I just haven't. I haven't proofread this uh, this the template for this episode since I wrote it six months ago, and I'm I'm just trying to make sure that I enunciate clearly, and that if there's any grammatical errors, that I absorb them, I interpret them, and then I speak the story. <laughs> What is happening? (laughs) It's the same damn paragraph that starts off every episode. Uh, All right, let's let's hit it. Oregon Trail. Go. 1.25x me. All right. Well, back to where I was before I was rudely interrupted for taking my time. You're definitely not a surgeon. (laughs) All right, Halstead. (laughs) You need a little bit more of Halstead's magic bean powder. (laughs) So as I was saying before, before I was rudely interrupted by Dr. John, today we are going to tackle doctrine on the Oregon Trail, which is a topic near and dear to my heart because, although I have never actually traveled along the said Oregon Trail, I did in fact die of dysentery, cholera, smallpox, measles, and typhoid fever several times over in my elementary school computer lab. Not sure younger listeners know what a computer lab is. I think, think of it as a room full of computers. Does it sound accurate to you? End of story. <laughs> dude, I don't, like, everybody always talks about playing Oregon Trail. Um, did you like, play it? Dude, I don't think I did. Like, you you were probably, what, six years apart in age. Yeah, you're, like, five years ahead of me in school or something, but I think we maybe just missed it. Or, like, I mean, I grew up in a very, 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 very poor rural community. <laughs> we may not have had access to <laughs> or the fanciness of Oregon Trail. <laughs> Maybe they're just now getting it. <laughs> Years of my life were spent is Oregon Trail and Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. Those were the the two computer lab games that were forced upon me at nausea. Mm. I remember the show or whatever Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. It was a based on a computer game. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Man, really child of the eighties here, nineties, missing out. I used to have jams. (laughs) All right. Well, I can't say that I ever died of uh, dysentery, cholera, smallpox, measles, or typhoid fever, but uh, elaborate. Tell me more, Dr. Guy. All right. We'll get right into it. So, So to start, I feel like we should take an opportunity to describe the Oregon Trail in general, its significance in American history, and its role in manifest destiny in America's great Western migration. I'm just going to nerd out a little bit on some American history, if you don't mind, so bear with me. All right, I'll be here when you're done. All right, don't fall asleep. (laughs) So the Oregon Trail was a pleasant 2,200-mile east-to-west trail that snaked through modern-day Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and finally Oregon. And it served as one of the primary transportation routes for immigrants traveling westward during the 1800s. The trail was initially blazed by fur trappers, traders, and missionaries, always missionaries, from about 1811 to 1840 and was traveled by foot or on horseback. 
It wouldn't be until around 1836 that the first migrant wagon trains began plodding along the trail. The travelers were inspired and motivated by dreams of rich farmlands and gold out west. But westward expansion also occurred to escape difficult economic times and diseases. Ah, we love diseases on this podcast. They were currently <laughs> festering and decimating the Midwestern U.S., such as yellow fever and even malaria. The U.S. government was also encouraging westward expansion. Go west, young man. As many political figures envisioned in America in which the United States controlled the ports on both coasts. The western ports were a valuable bridge to trade with the Far East, and in the early 1800s, California was under Mexican control, and the British were laying claim to Oregon, which at that time included all the land between California and Alaska. Who's Canada? <laughs> <laughs> with the Russians claiming Alaska at the time, which actually makes sense because it's a hell of a lot closer to Alaska than it is the United States, but yeah. Um, in the mid-19th century, John O'Sullivan, an influential political writer, journalist, wrote the infamous essay, Manifest Destiny, stating that the United States already held legal title to Oregon through the divine providence. The <laughs> ownership... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we start using that with other things around my neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> I own your car because of divine providence. Mm -hmm. um, so Manifest Destiny, the divine ownership of the land was meant to address British and Russian claims and completely ignored the Native Americans who called these lands their home for centuries before European, eventually American settlement. It would be Democratic President James K. Polk who would put Manifest Destiny into action. In fact, he built his entire political campaign around this idea of Manifest Destiny. Not only was Polk concerned over acquiring the Oregon Territory, but he was also crucial in acquiring Texas. Polk facilitated the easily won war with Mexico that gave the United States not only Texas with their preferred borders, but also much more territory in the Southwest, including New Mexico, Arizona, and California, with a little help from American West legends like Kit Carson. Hmm. I've never been to Taos, New Mexico, but basically every business is called like Kit Carson this, Kit Carson air conditioning, Kit Carson insurance, Kit Carson plumbing. Hmm, they love that son of a... <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm reading that book that you recommended, Ridgeline. Good. Great, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I just Googled the Oregon Trail and I see that it goes through Fort Kearney or something. Is yeah, that that's it. All right, interesting. Well, maybe I'll... I'll get there. The book, everybody, recommended by Dr. Guy, Ridgeline. Ridgeline by some dude that wrote another book. Is it Richard Punky? He wrote uh, The Reverend. Yeah. There was like a 20-year gap in between his books or something. I don't know. Anyways, I, I Googled him the other day. It's a good book. Historic, historical fiction. Fort Kearney on the Oregon Trail. Kearney is on uh Talk on of that the, map. the Freeman Massacre. Yeah, but also, um, Manifest <laughs> Destiny. Like, I mean, times are, just, times are just different back then, but people were such assholes to everybody. Like, it was really like a scrappy time, um, and people were just like screwing each other over. Um, but man, just being like, it's divine providence that we uh, eventually own all of this. Like, it's going to happen eventually, so um, might as well, you know, just manifest as ours. Uh, just no reason to waste time. 
<laughs> just assholes. But go ahead. Take what's yours, listeners. <laughs> Carpe that DM. <laughs> Uh, The Oregon Trail would function as the primary artery to the Pacific Northwest, and as settlers arrived in droves, America cemented its claim to the Western Territories of Oregon. By 1849, around the same time as Polk's death, the Manifest Destiny was near complete, and the United States of America controlled land from sea to shining sea. Don't sing again. You're nodding your head now. All right, Tom. Sorry. So it would be in the spring of 1843, the first ripple of a coming tide of would-be settlers piled everything who piled everything they owned into canvas-covered wagons, handcarts, and any other vehicle that could move, probably a Tesla, I don't know, um, and set out along a trail that they knew little about with dreams of reaching a promised land of milk and honey. Milk and honey sounds delicious. I'm kind of hungry. Travel to Oregon for some milk and honey. (laughs) If I was living in a New York tenement, I'd be like, let's get that honey and milk. (laughs) Give me some of that milk. (laughs) These dreamers were encouraged by the success of mountain man Joe Meek and his friend Bob Newell who had made it to Oregon in 1840, these two mountain men rigged up some wobbly wagons and trained horses to pull them. Meek and Newell managed to get the first wheeled vehicles over the Blue Mountains, and the wagon trip ultimately ended at Fort Walla Walla, uh, after which they took boats down the Columbia River to the Willamette River Valley. That's where Walla Walla, Washington must come from. (laughs) Is there a Walla Walla, Oregon? I don't know. (laughs) This should give you a better understanding of the how, the when, and the why. Now we can focus on all the terrible things that coincide with hordes of inexperienced, poorly equipped persons traveling 2,200 miles by a wagon train, a.k.a. Prairie Schooners, a.k.a. America's first mobile homes, RVs, in the 1800s. (laughs) Oh, that sounds fun. Delightful. Here's a description of a typical day on the trail, as narrated by Jesse Applegate, Applegate, the second was <laughs> to distinguish him from his uncle Jesse Applegate. Yeah, totally. Just like how your doctor guy guy to distinguish you from <laughs> your uncle doctor guy <laughs> makes complete sense. Um, so sentinels fired their rifles at four o'clock in the morning to wake the camp. Fires were lit, and the herders drove the oxen into the circle of wagons to be yoked. Um, For the day's journey, a makeshift corral was made the night before by parking the wagons in a circle. The rear wagon was connected with the wagon in the front by its tongue and ox chains. It was strong enough to keep oxen from breaking out and also serve as a barricade in case of an Indian attack. (laughs) Native American. (laughs) This is a quote. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to change the words of someone to make a PC. I would use Native American Jesse Applegate. Applegate preferred (laughs) India. Um, Five to seven o'clock were busy hours with breakfast to be eaten. Oxen teams yoked, tents folded, and wagons loaded. Promptly at seven, the bugle sounded and the wagon train was on its way. Women and children often walked beside the trail, gathered wildflowers and odd-looking stones. Productive. Boys and young men on horseback kept the loose stock from straying too far as they trailed along behind the wagons. At noon, we stopped to eat. Oxen were turned loose so they might graze and rest, 
Sometimes the officers of the train got together at noon to consider the case of someone who had violated the rules and committed a crime. He was given a fair trial, and if found guilty, he was sentenced according to the nature of his offense. I feel like I should be reading this in like an accent. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen that um, the old prospector sketch sketch with Will Ferrell from SNL? <laughs> It got cut, but like nobody could keep a straight face in it, and Will Ferrell's like this crazy old timey prospector. <laughs> I'll see if I can find a clip for the end of the episode, but I wish right, you could read it awesome. in that accent. At one o'clock, the bugle sounded, and the wagons were once more on their way. All through the afternoon, they traveled until the wagons arrived at the spot chosen by the guide for camp. Preparations were made to spend the night. Livestock were driven out to the pasture. Tents were pitched. Fire's belt and supper was on its way. Paul's supper ready yet? Perhaps hunters came in with choice parts of buffalo, antelope, and everyone enjoyed a feast. After supper, the children played their favorite games. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> did you grow up calling dinner supper? What did you call dinner growing up? Supper or dinner? Dinner. Oh, we called it supper. <laughs> That's because you were raised in your poor Kentucky town and the, you guys didn't have computer labs. <laughs> you had typewriter closets in your schoolhouse. <laughs> the elders gathered in groups and talked, perhaps making plans for the new homes to be built at the end of the Oregon Trail. Some of the young folk danced to the music of the fiddle or accordion, while those more serious-minded sang their favorite songs, some religious and some sentimental. Guard duty commenced at 8 o'clock at night and continued until... <laughs> now you're like some, like, fainting southern bell. What has happened here? Soon you're going to be slopping the boss, man. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving that accent behind. I'm going to leave it at the doorstep. So until 4 o'clock in the morning, various companies took turns at guard duty. One night out of three, fires were dimmed at an early hour, and everyone retired for the rest of tomorrow's march. Some slept in tents, some in wagons, some on the ground under the stars. Usually their sleep was undisturbed, save perhaps for the sharp yelp of a coyote on a nearby hill um, and the challenging bark of camp dogs. All right, well, that seems simple enough, you say. What could go wrong, you ask? Well, based on my childhood memory of the Oregon Trail computer game, quite a bit. Mm. First off, the rules of doctoring were a bit different in the 1800s in comparison to today. We've tried to make a point of this episode after episode. <laughs> if you still don't believe us, I will persist. Um, doctors at the time had no tangible idea of what caused infectious disease, what bacteria or microorganisms were, what a virus was, and thanks to the Napoleonic Wars, between 1803 to 1815, they had just gained an appreciation that if dirt, feces, or bullet fragments or other matter contaminated a wound, it could result in a gangrenous infection that would likely lead to death. Or, the fan favorite of the 1800s, amputation. <laughs> As a result, the 1800s were essentially the golden age of medical quackery. Think COVID-19, injecting bleach into your veins, drinking Lysol, all the favorites. Um, we're playing all the hits. But in a time in which even the smartest of doctors was, in modern terms, an idiot, the medical <laughs> professionals of the time were all essentially reading the wrong textbook. 
because there wasn't enough knowledge available to even write a textbook at the time. Our old friends, the Four Humors, were alive and well in the 19th century. Quacks entertained hypnotism, strict bread and apple diets, castor oil enemas mm. for everything. And I mean everything. Constipation, enema. Stomach cramps, enema. Chest pain, enema. Earache, enema. Broken bone, enema. It usually helps. Reputable pharmacies of the time stocked Dover's powder, a mixture of opium and Ipecac, meant to relieve pain and induce sweating. Black drops, a solution of opium and vinegar. Laudanum, a mixture of opium and alcohol, often sweetened with a spoonful of sugar because we all know that helps the medicine go down. That's the one that I want to try. I want to go back and try some laudanum. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and dragon's blood, a bright red plant resin used to treat morbid impressions in the blood, quote unquote, and the like since the time of the ancient Greeks. Uh, alongside things we still see in the drugstores today, such as glue, soap, castor oil, and carbonate, milk of magnesia. As one author, Bethany Nimick, points out, the ready availability of opium in different forms reflects the fact that relieving pain was the one helpful thing that doctors could reliably do for patients during that time. On a side note, there were even opium knockout drops marketed to women who wanted to keep their wayward husbands home at night. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going anywhere. <laughs> Just have another drink, honey. <laughs> Familiar soft drinks of today, including Coca-Cola and Dr. Pepper, were originally sold as patent medicines. Today's recipe is a little different, though, mainly due to the fact that the drinks now lack the cocaine. Mm. Not for uh, Halstead. <laughs> he was a Dr. Pepper fan. He was an originalist when it came to his Coca-Cola. I don't understand why they don't call him Dr. Halsteads. <laughs> Even physicians considered well-trained by the standards of the times offered treatments that were hardly better. For example, the most common way of treating a high fever, for example, was to cut open a vein and drain blood from the patient. Of course, a good doctor knew that it was important to make a cut deep enough that the patient's blood would spurt into the air with every heartbeat because you had to put on a show back then. Did they know the difference between a vein and an artery back then? <laughs> <laughs> the most commonly prescribed drug of the time was the toxic element mercury, usually in the form of mercuric chloride, a disease death and doctor's favorite. I might add, uh, mercury was the active ingredient in many medicines of the period. These medicines were typically administered until the patient began to drool uncontrollably, a classic sign of mercury poisoning, which was mistaken for evidence that the medicine was working. Um, I mean, <laughs> you're definitely in the uh, therapeutic window for that drug if that's what you're aiming for. Uh, so that's what the wagon trains were working with as they traveled across an unforgiving wilderness where they would encounter all numbers of disease, broken bones, attacks by hostile Native Americans or Indians. At least we forget the white man as a whole were habitual line steppers, uh, drowning exposure to the elements, hypo and hyperthermia, dehydration, nutrient deficiency, i.e. scurvy, starvation. And on top of all that, there was no rule that you had to be an excellent physical condition to travel on the Oregon Trail. So combine that with the alcoholism and occasional psychiatric illness, and you've got a proper recipe for a medical dumpster fire. Mm, that is the appropriate term. 
so the devastating impact of any of the above described meant that despite the lowest esteem to which the public viewed most doctors of the time, they were still valued during such an intense and unpredictable journey. Wagon trains were fortunate to have a doctor traveling with them. Those that didn't would try their best to stay within a day or two ride of a train that did. After all, some form of hope is better than no hope at all, they say. Well, most of the time, that is, because one account of a seven-year-old boy who fell from a moving wagon and then proceeded to have his leg run over by both wagon wheels was found to have his lower extremity almost completely cut in half and his bone broken. Oh, rock me, mama, like a wagon. (laughs) (laughs) The following is going to describe what healthcare on the Oregon Trail looked like. So riders in the boys' train rode ahead, asking each company if they had a doctor. Ultimately, they reached a wagon train in which someone pointed to a man by the name of Edwin Bryant. Bryant, is, it is said, was an educated man and a good Samaritan who had helped a few men in his train with various ailments, but a doctor he was not. He may have stayed at a Holiday Inn Express that. Um, Bryant disclosed this fact to the desperate party, but they were, in fact, desperate for the help, and they insisted that he at least see the boy. By the time Bryant had arrived, he learned the injury had occurred nine days prior and found that another man who proclaimed himself to be a doctor had addressed the boy's wound by wrapping linen cloth around the leg and then putting the leg in some sort of plank box. It's like a magic trick. (laughs) (laughs) The leg had remained as described, undressed, not cleaned, until the boy called out complaining of worms crawling in his leg. When the mother examined the leg, it was gangrenous, and the tissue almost appeared to move as the maggots roamed freely. This is when they sent for Bryant, he discovered. After examining the wound, Bryant observed a compound fracture and putrefaction, as gangrene was called at the time, from the foot to the knee. The boy was febrile and ill-appearing. Bryant informed the mother that there was nothing that could be done, and an attempt to amputate the limb at this point would only hasten the boy's death and suffering. But as any good frontier mom would, the mother insisted something be done, refusing to let Bryant give up on the boy. Luckily, in the party, there was a Canadian Frenchman who heard the mother's pleas and stated that he was an assistant to a surgeon and had been present for numerous operations. He would perform the amputation if Bryant would not. So basically, the dude had seen a bunch of surgeries on YouTube and he was ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) Put me in, coach. (laughs) The man uh, spread his tools out in front of Bryant. And again, he's not a surgeon. So I think when they say his tools, they literally were tools. A spade. And saws <laughs> and screwdrivers. Um, in front of Bryant and those that were present, his instruments of choice were a common butcher's knife, a carpenter's handsaw, and a shoemaker's awl to address arterial bleeding. Not sure how he intended to use the awl. Google that one on your own. Um, so our French-Canadian friend used his butcher's knife and incised a leg below the knee to the level of the bone, at which time he stopped and decided that it would be best if the amputation was performed above the knee instead. <laughs> Compared to from a BKA to an AKA, <laughs> just on a whim. <laughs> so sorry about that first incision, but we're going to go a little higher. <laughs> a cord was wrapped around the thigh above the level of the second planned amputation site, tight enough that it was said to cut into the flesh and the knife and saw were applied, resulting in the amputation of the leg. Upon the conclusion of the procedure, only a couple of drops of blood oozed from the stump. But the child was found to be dead. Aw. Ugh. How 
many uh, kids from our uh, class went into ortho? I can think of one. Yeah. And he fits the stereotype perfectly. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I feel like they're a handful, but but man, what a what a specialty. I mean, it's that sounds gruesome, but uh, that could also be in an op note. <laughs> <laughs> totally could. You put suits in there because there's yeah. bone fragments and blood flying all over the place. And we converted from a BKA to an AKA. <laughs> Applied the tourniquet above the knee. <laughs> I was so present for the entire case. <laughs> Before returning to his wagon train, Bryant was invited to attend a wedding in the camp. And life on the trail goes on. The most common medical problem along the Oregon Trail was gastrointestinal illness, ranging from common bowel complaints such as constipation, enema, um, to diarrhea, to cholera, or typhoid fever. Despite their lack of understanding regarding bacterial and viral infections, doctors at the time were excellent at grouping symptoms together and could at this time differentiate between fevers caused by typhoid, yellow fever, and cholera. The sheer numbers of participants in some of the larger parties made cholera particularly problematic. And at the time, it's been said that there were almost as many unique cures for cholera as there were physicians to treat it. But most physicians of the mid-19th century agreed with the following. In the first phase of cholera, patients were confined to bed and given spearmint, chamomile, or a warm camphor julep. It's the official drink of the Oregon Trail. <laughs> what about um, some fucking essential oils and <laughs> some salt crystals? Um, camphor is now actually an FDA-approved anti-cough medicine and topical analgesic as well as anesthetic, FYI. Once the patient began to perspire, camphor oil, magnesia, or magnesia, um, and poor or pure castor oil was administered if the patient failed to show signs of recovery or developed cramps, nausea, or massive diarrhea. The physician believed the patient had entered the second phase of the disease. Now it was time for the big guns. Bum, bum, bum. Doctors believed that the patient's feet needed to be placed in warm water mixed with salt and mustard. Doesn't that make you pee? <laughs> what? <laughs> if you put somebody's feet in warm water while they're sleeping, don't they pee on themselves? You're like an 11-year-old boy at sleepaway camp. (laughs) Back to the warm water mixed with salt and mustard, uh, more camphor and castor oil and chamomile were given. If deterioration continued, the doctor believed the patient to be entering the third phase, the ominous, ominous stage of asphyxia. Now would be time to bleed the patient with hopes this would relieve internal congestion. Remember, to make your cuts extra deep so that blood spurts out. The patient would also receive a rescue dose of sulfuric acid, and if they were lucky, another enema consisting of <laughs> chicken tea <laughs> mixed with a pint of salt. The fourth stage was marked by coma and death. Needless to say, there was a lot of cholera-related death on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think their treatment worsened <laughs> the mortality rate? I just love the fact that the treatment algorithm involved at least two enemas. <laughs> Number needed to harm one. <laughs> <laughs> so diaries of travelers also reported mountain fever, an ailment that was never clearly linked to a modern day disease. It was speculated to either be altitude sickness 
But since you're traveling across the Great Plains, I'm going to go ahead and say no to that. <laughs> and their rate of ascent is pretty damn slow. <laughs> it's, it's not like they hopped a plane from like <laughs> sea level to Breckenridge or something. Um, or possibly typhoid fever, an ailment known as camp fever, was also commonly described and has been determined to be scurvy, um, a vitamin nutritional deficiency recently described in our first episode of season two. <laughs> burns were not uncommon, and the most effective traditional approach to treating burns was to coat the burn skin with egg white. Um, this, <laughs> Cholesterol. That's right. As this provided a sterile seal for the skin and helped keep the wound from drying out, um, some folks on the Oregon Trail had had to use axle grease instead because there were no eggs, which was made of rendered animal fat and perhaps a bit of beeswax, then with turpentine. Rattlesnake bites were treated as depicted in Old Western. Somebody would slice open the bite wound and suck the poison out. This was said to be fairly effective if done correctly. I cannot tell you what the correct versus incorrect method of <laughs> snake venom suckage is i'd like to see you demonstrate incorrect incorrect technique no tongue <laughs> no tongue should be involved so while disease was the single biggest threat to travelers along the oregon trail doctors were often called upon to deal with accidental injuries as well horses and oxen sometimes bit or kicked their owners People occasionally slipped as they were climbing on or off their wagons and were run over, as described previously, and there were even a handful of people struck by lightning over the years. Got to rub some egg yolks on that. Um, among the most difficult injuries to treat were the gunshot wounds, as doctors could do little beyond bandaging the wound and relieving the pain. Opium, please. If a bullet or musket ball remained within the body, doctors used slim rods of metal or bone to prod the entry wound poking around until they found the bullet by touch. And then they tried to reach in, often with bare fingers, and pull it out through the wound it made on the way in. Ah, sterile technique at its finest. <laughs> Most gunshot wounds on the trail were the result of somebody's carelessness or lack of experience with firearms. Then, of course, there were Indian attacks. This kind of thing tends to happen when large groups of people trespass on another person's land. Early on... <laughs> <laughs> Indian attacks were rare. In the 1840s, most Indians actually proved to be, Native Americans actually proved to be very helpful, providing information about the trail ahead and were even frequently hired as guides. Regardless, precautions were taken and night when camp was established, the wagons were arranged in a corral, both for animal grazing, but also to be used as an impromptu defensive position. While the Native Americans rarely attacked these wagon circles, stragglers or small groups were attacked on occasion by Indians, who were mostly interested in the horses and supplies. It is estimated that prior to the 1849 California Gold Rush, only 34 white settlers and 25 Indians were killed in fighting on the Oregon Trail. Relations between the travelers and Indians unfortunately soured in the late 1850s. In September of 1860, the small Uter wagon train was attacked by Bannock Indians, and only 14 of the 44 travelers made it to Oregon. Native American or Indian danger would be such a problem in the summer of 1867 that the U.S. Army would forbid travel by single wagons into western Kansas. The most complete and detailed account of arrow wounds and treatments is by Dr. Joseph Howland Bills. Uh, 
quote, notes on arrow wounds, unquote, which is considered the definitive work. (laughs) 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 Notes on arrow wounds. (laughs) That's a real head scratcher of a title there. And the best part is, it's considered the definitive work on American arrow wounds. Bows and arrows were designed to inflict maximum injury, thus the nature of the arrow wounds were thought to be just as deadly as any gunshot wound, and in some situations the arrow proved more destructive to the victim and more difficult to treat for the doctor. If the arrow's shaft was left in place, Dr. Bell's treatment was to make an incision or make an incision to enlarge the entry wound and slide a finger down the shaft to feel the depth of the wound and determine if the arrowhead is lodged in bone. Without the shaft in place, the doctor would be forced to search for the arrowhead by making a larger incision, probing through tissue, again, probably with his bare finger, causing more trauma and taking more time. Hence, it was much easier for the doctor and the patient if the shaft was left intact. Note to self, if I ever get shot with an arrow, leave the shaft intact. I'll quote you on that one, Dr. Guy. (laughs) Uh, Further, there was always the danger that the arrowhead could not be found, leaving the angular and jagged head buried in bone to kill. One method to determine if the arrowhead was lodged in bone was by twirling the shaft. (laughs) That sounds painful as hell. (laughs) If the shaft moved, the arrowhead was declared to not be lodged in bone. Mm. But then it moved in circles and decimated whatever tissue was in the vicinity. Um, Much of the victim's chance of survival depended on where they were injured and how deep the wound was. Even with apparently straightforward wounds, complications could occur. However, for instance, even though doctors knew how to treat a severed artery, medical help often could not be obtained in time to stop the victim from bleeding to death. Other complications including fractures, broken bones, and severed nerves. But if the arrowhead was removed, these injuries were not usually fatal. Abdominal wounds also proved to be exceedingly dangerous because unlike the lungs and the the abdomen is not protected from the ribcage. In fact, it was said that Mexican soldiers were known to wrap blankets around the middle of their body to keep arrows from penetrating the abdominal cavity. I wonder if that works. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that uh, thing that they tried for uh, elderly patients where they basically had them wear like pads on their hips to see if that would prevent broken hips from falls and it caused a lot more broken hips because <laughs> they couldn't walk because <laughs> they couldn't walk yeah. <laughs> so like going in like the michelin man into battle <laughs> maybe caused more all-cause mortality <laughs> um in the instance of an abdominal arrow injury, organ trail doctors would enlarge the wound in order to examine the abdominal cavity. If the intestines were lacerated, wire was used to suture the injury. Not sure how well that worked out. And obviously, uh, the arrowhead was removed if the patient was to have any chance of recovery. Hmm. <laughs> that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could probably talk about a lot more stuff here, but... That is just simply a snapshot of the Oregon Trail and some of the fun that awaited ambitious immigrants and travelers. A lot could go wrong, and really, only one thing could go right, which is you make it to Oregon and enjoy a delicious Pinot Noir. Some uh, goat cheese. With, <laughs> with most of your family still alive, limited dysentery, 
And you can enjoy living in a frontier in which disease, starvation, Indian tax, and clueless medical personnel lurked around every corner. I mean, 2020, 2021 hasn't been the best, but I'd take it over 1843 <laughs> any day of, the, day of the week and twice on Sunday, um, especially if you're talking about a trip down the Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, thanks for walking us down the Oregon Trail. Hiking us down? Guiding us down? Guiding Slowly us down. Slowly meandering down the Oregon Trail. <laughs> oh, and uh, we had some pretty good accents along the way. Not as many as I thought I was going to do. I figured this was going to be like the episode to just let loose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I might just swoon on the Oregon Trail. <laughs> Oh well, yeah, that was a that was a solid rundown. Thanks, uh. There's thanks, a stick in my boat. There's a coyote on that hill. <laughs> oh, peaches! <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks, Doctor Guy. No problem. I hope everyone enjoyed the episode, um, and you walk away with a great understanding of how shitty the Oregon Trail was and how many different ways how many faces of death there were on the Oregon Trail many faces of death <laughs> there are many ways to meet your demise and the doctors were not prepared to help you uh, they had lots of mercury with them so mercury opium camphor the blue pill and enemas <laughs> lots of enemas <laughs> alright well thanks for tuning in everybody thank you guys stay safe out there happy 2022 cheers cheers